Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. share with you some thoughts tonight on the fear of the Lord. A few, a few uh, months back, I was having lunch with someone, and we were talking about some issues that were going on in their life. And, and I mentioned to them, I said, I think you need to understand the fear of the Lord. And they looked at me with kind of a blank look and said, what? And they said, I don't even understand what the fear of the Lord is. And they said, does that mean I need to be afraid of God? I thought that I could love God. And so uh, I, I went on to explain some things that I, that I would want to share with you tonight. In the Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we if you want to have wisdom in life, and I, and I hope that all of you do, because wisdom is God's way to live. If you live life by wisdom, you'll live a successful life, a life that will be fruitful, a life that will count for eternity. You live a life that's contrary to wisdom, then you will be what the Proverbs call a fool, and you will waste your life while you're here. Now, I want to talk a little bit about tonight, what is the fear of the Lord? Because it's the beginning point of wisdom. In the book of Exodus, Moses spends some tremendous time with God. You know, Moses was 40 years old before he uh, really, really began to take the call of God in his life. He was raised in Egypt. He was raised in their best universities. And he was a well-educated man. When he was about 40 years old, he saw the oppression of his fellow Israelites by the Egyptian government. And he took it upon himself because God had put it in his heart that he was to be a deliverer except that he took matters into his own hands. And one day when one of the guards was beating one of the Israelites, he went up and popped him one and killed him. He had a pretty pretty mean right hook, I guess. And uh, buried him and thought, well, nobody will know about this. Well, the next day, two other Israelites were arguing. And he comes up to them and says, brothers, brothers, what are you doing arguing like this? And they both turned on him and said, hey, you're going to kill us like you killed that guy yesterday? Moses was suddenly very afraid because he knew he was on the FBI top 10 wanted list. So he fled out into the desert and he lived for the next 40 years of his life as a sheep herder. He met um, a man named Jethro, married her daughter and became a sheep herder for the next 40 years of his life. And Moses was 80 years old when God met him at the burning bush. And the next 40 years of his life are some of the most incredible years that any man has ever spent because much of that time was spent in the presence of God. And in one of these times when he's having this intimate fellowship with God, God, he asked God a question. And this is a good question that we should ask. And this is in Exodus 33 and verse 13. Moses says to God, he says, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. So now Moses is asking God a question. He's saying, God, I want to know you but I want to know you and your ways. See, And Moses understood that if I understand the ways of God, then I can understand more about who God is. Now, one of the things, you don't have to walk with Jesus very long before you discover that God doesn't do things the way we do, does he? God's ways are much different than our ways. But it says in Psalms 103 in verse 7 that 
God answered Moses' prayer because it says he made his ways known to Moses and his deeds or his acts to the people of Israel. So for 40 years in the wilderness, as God directed this group of approximately 3 million rebellious Jews in the wilderness, God took care of them. He provided manna for them every day. Their clothes didn't wear out. It was a pretty incredible experience. But all, all through that time, they saw the most miraculous deeds of God of any generation up until then and probably to this point. They saw more miraculous provision. And yet in spite of that, they didn't submit to, to God's leading. They continually rebelled against Moses until finally God said, enough. And he said, all of you will perish in the wilderness and I'll take the next generation your children, I'll take them into the promised land. So that's why they wandered for 40 years. It wasn't that God could not have brought them into the wilderness. It was because their attitudes were such that they wouldn't submit to God's dealings. And they just they just wanted to do their own thing. And so God finally just said, okay, I'll take care of you. I'll give you the air conditioning and the food and I'll take care of you. But for 40 years, they wandered in the desert until they all died off. And that's when Joshua comes on the scene in the book of Joshua and Joshua takes this, all of their children, still about three million strong, into the promised land. And we read all the great miracles and the exploits that God did through them. Now, kind of the moral of the story is, I don't want to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Do you? See, now you can do that as a Christian. See, because I don't think that those people lost their salvation. They were still God's people. He loved them. He took care of them. But they missed God's purpose for their generation. And see, if we if we only know the acts of God and don't understand His ways, that, then we're we're going to, we're going to get fouled up when God does things differently than we think He should do them. In Isaiah chapter fifty five, very very famous verse, God says, "For my ways are not your ways, and just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts." And so God just does things on a totally different agenda. And as we begin to understand his ways, as we as we say, now, Lord, I want to learn your ways. I, I want to know you and I want to trust you in the ways that you will lead me. See, that's where we really get to know God right now. I was talking with Christy before the meeting and um, her husband, Nate, um, lost his job with an engineering firm here. And so it's a real difficult time for them as a family because he had a permanent job and they've made certain commitments to live here in Bozeman and Rather unexpectedly, he, he was he was terminated from his job. And so how many of you know that could disturb your peace a little bit? And you kind of go, hey, oh God, what are you going to do? You know, but if we understand God's ways, I'll say, now, Lord, you've got a purpose in all this. You're still our father. You're still committed to caring for us. And I know that you'll take us through this difficulty. And see, Nate and Christy are going to learn deeper lessons of who God is, and they're going to know God in a deeper way if they walk in, in obedience and if they'll say, now, God, I want to know your ways. And, and, and it's in those difficulties many times that God really reveals himself in more powerful ways to us. Psalms 128, this is kind of a psalm about the fear of the Lord. It says, blessed are all those who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. Now, we can either walk in our own ways or we can walk in God's ways. And the psalmist says, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in God's ways, not their own. Now here's, that's, that's the, uh, that's the condition. Here's the promise. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. How many say that sounds good? 
See, that's biblical promise to you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, and your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. That must mean it's really a good thing. Thus the man is blessed who fears the Lord. And the Lord will bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, and may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So what it's talking about, that's a full and a satisfying life. And that's the promise. The condition is those who fear the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, I I think, is is such an important, important um, just quality for us to understand. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Proverbs 8.13. I want you to turn there. If you've got your Bible, you ought to circle that or yellow highlight it because this is a very, very important verse. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's to hate evil. You think God hates evil? Yes, he does. He hates it because of what it does to him and what it does to all of his creatures. So if I'm going to have the fear of God, I'm going to have the same view towards evil that God has. Can we say that together? I'll say it a phrase at a time. You say it after me. To fear the Lord Lord. is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, arrogance. evil behavior, behavior. and perverse speech. Those are the things that God hates. Now, I've, I've, I've heard, I've talked to people sometimes and they, they've thought that the fear of the Lord is somehow tied up with being afraid of God. And, and that's not true because in Romans 8, 14 and 15, we read that God has not given us a spirit of fear that leads to slavery again, but he's given us the spirit in our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And those of you who have taken the Father Heart of God seminar, that's kind of the, one of the main verses on us understanding who we are as sons and daughters. Is that see, God has given us not a spirit of fear. I'm not a, I'm not afraid of a divine dictator, but He's giving me the spirit of sonship. And the, my response to that is, I cry, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. I can have an intimate, loving, and trusting relationship with Him. So the fear of the Lord doesn't mean to be afraid of Him. Neither is it just keeping a rule. All right, just keep the rules and God will be happy. But it's it's much more than that. It's hating what God hates. I need to love what God loves and I need to hate what God hates. I have uh, I'm just so grateful for my father. And I I if I think if I can be half the father that my dad was to me, if I can be that to my children, I I I will consider myself as being a success. My dad was a wonderful balance of love and discipline. He was a very loving and uh, very giving man, very generous man, very industrious. There's so many positive qualities that, that are in my life just directly attributable to him. And I'll, I'll be eternally grateful for my dad's parenting in my life. One thing my dad was, was a strong disciplinarian. And he wasn't mean or cruel, but there were lines. And when those lines were crossed, my dad dealt with me severely. And I would get spankings. And, um, and um, anyway, it wasn't harsh and cruel. It was just biblical discipline. But I got paddled when I defied my mom's and my dad's authority. Like my dad drew a line and said, Dick, there's the line. Of course, like all little kids, you know, you go, you got to put your toe over it once and then whack, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to respect that line. <laughs> then you go over here and you do that. I remember one time, my, my son loves this story because uh, I had done something wrong. And I, I must have been about two, two and a half years old. And I got this idea, you know, that 
I, I knew my dad was coming after me, so I thought I'm going to outrun my dad. You know, so, <laughs> you know, so I just took off running in the yard. And I can remember my dad got real steamed, and he came running after me and whap whap whap. Well, I really got wailed on that time. So I learned, you know, you don't run away from dad when he's mad. <laughs> and and there were, see, there's there was an impartation of, of discipline into my life that taught me something about the fear of God. And when, when we fail to discipline our children and set limits for them, what we're doing is, is that we're really handicapping them in life because it's hard for them to understand that there's a God in heaven who has eternal moral laws. And when you break his laws, you don't just get a spanking, you destroy yourself. See? And I see that's what God has, has built the mechanism of, of loving discipline loving correction to put psychological barriers in our minds that there are certain lines that I don't want to cross. See, when I learn as a child, if I step over my dad's line, I got paddled and it hurt. But see, boy, that that taught me, <laughs> I'm going to stay away from that. And now as an adult, I don't get paddled anymore. But I have a, I do have a profound respect for God's law. And, and there's, a, there's still a good respect for authority that came from my dad's discipline. A, a, a number of years ago, I was an adult, way an adult by this time. I was painting my dad's house with him. And so we were uh, working together and we were setting up this scaffolding. And my dad said, Dick, let's set it up this way. And I said, nah, dad, let's do it this way. And he said, nah, Dick, let's do it this way. And so we're just having a good natured argument, you know. We got a little exasperated with me. And he, he said uh, the word that he always said when I was in trouble, he said, Richard. <laughs> Whoa. And I got Richard. That meant I was in trouble. My dad said that. He said, Richard. He said a little sharply. He said, let's do it this way. And I felt that kind of that uh, rush of adrenaline. I thought, oh no, I'm going to get a spanking here. <laughs> I just had to laugh that, that that reaction was still in me. But I'm thankful for my, for my dad that he disciplined me and he taught me that. We need to understand that there's certain things that God hates and I need to hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. Now, what does God hate? We find that in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. This list might surprise you because, you know, we, you might think that what, what angers God is, is robbing banks and beating up your grandmother. But that's not what this list talks about. Proverbs 16, Proverbs 6 and verse 16 says, There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Now that's speaking in the poetic language that the Proverbs are written in. Now here's the seven things. Number one is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. You know what haughty eyes are? It's arrogance. It's looking at other people and scorning them. It's looking at other people and thinking, I am better than you are. I looked it up in the dictionary. Haughty means too proud of oneself and too scornful of others. You know, God hates that. When we look down on other people, he is angry at that. Second thing he hates is a lying tongue. He likes us to tell truth. And when I do not tell the truth and 100% truth, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, that we used to say in our courtrooms before God got kicked out. See, God hates any, any shading and distortion of the truth. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. That has to do with violence. Wanton violence where innocent people are, are, are brutalized. God hates that. A heart that devises wicked schemes. God hates that. Feet that rush quickly to evil. He hates that. A false witness who pours out lies. That's bearing false witness, telling half truths or mistruths about someone else. 
That's what we call gossip. God says, I hate that. And finally, a man who stirs up dissension among brothers, a person that likes to sow seeds of controversy in a family, in a church, in a group of people, God says, I hate that. Now, God is exactly the opposite of all of these things. What, did, what would the opposite of haughty eyes be? Humble eyes. What, think of a description of eyes that would be opposite of haughty. Loving. How about gentle or warm? See, that's the way God's eyes are. He's not haughty. How about a lying tongue? Everything God speaks is 100% truth. How about hands that shed innocent blood? What does he do? He, he protects the innocent, doesn't he? See, he, he defends the orphan and the widow. He, he doesn't exploit them. How about a heart that devises wicked schemes? What does God's heart devise? Loving schemes. Yeah. See, so, you know, th- you think about this, you know, God is planning good for you. You know, when God is awake at night, well, he's awake all the time, but you know, when you're asleep at night and God's thinking about you, do you know he is setting plans of good for you? He is laying plans, Julie, of incredible blessing for you. Things that are going to bless and enrich your life. That's the kinds of things God thinks about when he thinks about you. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, God's just the opposite. He stays away from evil. A false witness who pours out lies. You know, God always speaks the truth, doesn't he? You know, and if you ask God, if I if I say, now God, uh, can you give me, give me a little report on Michael Collins? You know, do, you, do you know what God's going to say? God's going to say, oh, he's my beloved son. And he's going to say things like, I'm so proud of him. It delights my heart when he seeks me. I appreciate his attempts at obedience. I appreciate it that his heart is towards me. And when I speak to him, he obeys. That's the kind of report you would get if you called up God on anybody. You see, God never gives a bad report. And finally, God doesn't stir up strife. What does he do? Brings peace and bring, promotes reconciliation. So God says, these are the things that I hate. And if we're going to align ourselves with the fear of the Lord, we need to hate the same things. Proverbs 9.10 again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, Satan has no wisdom whatsoever. And that's why he will never win because he always goes too far. He always defeats himself because he believes his own lies and deceptions. You know, Satan really believes that he's going to win. Satan really believes that he's going to outsmart God. Satan really believes that he's going to win in the end. And he's, he's believed his own lie. He's deceived himself. And it's because, see, he has no wisdom. And that's why he will always go too far. He will always mess up his own plans because without the fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom. Now, to, to show you an example, I think, of how God wants to reveal his wisdom to us, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. In See, the writings of Isaiah, these are his memoirs. These are, these are Isaiah's reflections that he had from his quiet times, from his times of devotion with the Lord. And the Holy Spirit just anointed him to write them all down, and now we have them in his book. Isaiah was a righteous man in the day that he lived. He was, he was, a, he was a prophet in the days of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was one of the better kings in the nation of Israel over their history. They had some real bad dudes. But you know what they wrote about King Uzziah? It says, but King Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's a great commendation. That's a great thing. I wonder if someone writes your memoirs someday, 
Will they be able to say that about you? Dennis, will they write about you that you did what was right in the sight of the Lord? Joy, will they write in in your memoirs? Will God make the comment? Yes, Joy did what was right in the sight of the Lord. See, all of us are going to be evaluated. And the good news is see, all of us can live that way. So that at the judgment day, we can all receive the commendation from the Lord of well done, good and faithful servant. See, no matter who we are, if we'll be faithful to Jesus each day, then he will give us that commendation on the last day. I wonder what they'll write about you at the end of your life. Can it be said that you were doing what was right in the sight of the Lord? Well, Isaiah served under a king like that. And Isaiah, or excuse me, Uzziah was the king. And he uh, really made a golden age for Israel. It was a time of economic prosperity. It was a time of peace from their enemies. He really built up their military, pushed out the Philistines, enlarged their borders. And uh, it was it was very a very prosperous five, oh, uh, let's see, about um, 30 years. So it was a very good period of history. King Uzziah was, was a very good king. Now, King Uzziah died. And uh, there was a level of despair because this great king had died and now they, there was a change in leadership. And it says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, now Isaiah's having his quiet time. He's in a time of prayer. He's meditating on the Lord. It's like any other day, except this day, something incredible happens. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim flew above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now what Isaiah saw was a picture into heaven, the very throne room of God. This is the same picture that John sees in the book of Revelation. And he catches this same vision that's that's going on right now. There are these incredible beings before the throne of God, and they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, who was, who is, and who is to come. And it says, and the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple, while the temple was filling with smoke. And so Isaiah has a revelation of God on his throne. He has a spiritual revelation and and it impacts him powerfully. How does it impact him? Verse five says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, you need to understand, Isaiah was the Billy Graham of his generation. There was probably not a more righteous man in the nation of Israel. And if you would have interviewed anyone in that country and said, what kind of man is Isaiah? They would have all said, whoa, Isaiah is a man of God. He's a righteous man. He's a prophet. He hears from God. God works miracles through his hands. No one would have said anything negative about him because he was one of God's giants. But yet, when Isaiah saw afresh the holiness of God, he said, oh no, I'm undone. I was okay while I was having my quiet time, and now I've just seen the king. What did he say? 
I'm unclean. Because he saw himself in the light of God's holiness. And he said, not only did I, not, not only am I unclean, but this whole nation is unclean. And he's, and here, and here, he, he zeroes in on, on the one issue, and that's our words. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. And that's, you know, that's really where we sin the most is with our words. Because Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says that you can tame all kinds of animals, but you can't tame the tongue. Isn't that true? It's so hard to control your words, isn't it? That's why Jesus has to change your heart. Then your words will change. So Isaiah was undone. He, it's like he's saying, man, I'm unglued here. What am I going to do? And he was in a real sense of despair after this revelation. And see, all of us, you guys, every one of us needs this to happen. Every one of us needs to have a revelation of God's holiness. Because holiness is one attribute of God that we cannot understand apart from him coming to us. Because holiness, there's just nothing else like it. He alone is holy. I love that old hymn. Holy, holy, holy. Remember the old church hymn? What a, oh, that's a powerful hymn. But see, there's nothing, there's no one else that's holy in the universe. And I am so unholy. And so Jesus, what he wants me to do is he wants me to cry out to him, Lord, show me your holiness. Show me who you really are. Because once a revelation of holiness comes, then I will begin to hate what God hates. Now, I'm sure glad that God didn't leave him there because we read in verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim, these are these majestic beings flying around the throne. He flew to me and with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So he grabbed these tongs, he grabbed this hot glowing coal and he comes over and he touched Isaiah's mouth with it. I suppose there was a little searing up. <laughs> but God cleansed him, didn't he? And the, and the and the angel said, "Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Aren't you glad for the provision of Jesus Christ? See, once we see ourselves and we go, "Oh, yuck," then we look to Jesus, and He comes and cleanses us. And He only does that not to torment us and make us feel bad, but I need to have that revelation, or I'm going to go on loving all the stuff that I love. And most of us love evil, don't we? Some of us, I find it hard to break some sin patterns in my life because I like sin too much. I just, it's real hard to give up something you like, isn't it? And so I've got to say, God, you've got to change this whole heart. You know, you got to change this cheating heart here. You got to come and show me your holiness so that I can hate what you hate and love with what you love. And God so much desires to do that. And it comes as a progressive revelation. I've had, I've had many experiences where the Lord has come to me and, and it's like I, I begin to see my attitudes more in God's light. And the more I see of it, the more I go, oh, yuck, I don't like that at all. And I come back to, to, to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, cleanse me of this. Take one of those, alt, those uh, coals off the altar and clean my lips up, clean, clean my thoughts up so that I will be glorifying to you. And that's something that God wants to do. He wants to do for all of us. But I believe it's something that we need to cry out for and we need to have a passion for. And say, God, I really want this. Well, the story doesn't end there. Verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
And who will go for us? The word us there is an allusion to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then Isaiah responds and says, Lord, here am I, send me. And he volunteers for service. You know, all the assignments in the kingdom of God are voluntary. They're always voluntary. See, God doesn't draft anyone into any assignment, but he always asks, who wants to go for me? Who wants to go to the nations? Who wants to go to Hannon Hall for me? Who wants to go to the inner city for me? Who wants to go to China for me? See, God always, I'm taking volunteers here. And when we say, yes, Lord, I'll go. Then God says, "You, I'll take you. He never drafts us. He always allows us to have the choice. And God's looking for people to send. But see, he can only send those that have been cleansed with the coal from the altar. Only those that have the revelation of his holiness are qualified to go. Psalms 19.14 is a, is a powerful little verse. It says this, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now that's pretty awesome, isn't it? Let the words of my mouth, let everything I say, and then beyond that, let every thought that I think be acceptable to God. Now, I heard a lady teach on this when I was at a discipleship training school in Youth with a Mission. And she said this. She said, I would like to come to the point where God could write out on a big blackboard every one of my thoughts that I've had in the last 24 hours. God would write every thought that I've thought, every everything I thought about in the last 24 hours. God would be able to write out on a huge blackboard and I wouldn't be ashamed for anyone to read it. And I think that's what holiness ultimately is. Now, what if God took your thoughts that you've had in this last 24 hours? What if he wrote them out and, and we all flashed them up here on the screen? What would our reaction be? It'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? Because that, that gives us a picture really of how unholy we really are. But see, David understood this and he cried. He said, Lord, I want the thoughts that I think. I want my words to be acceptable to in your sight so that even if they were all written out for everyone to read, I wouldn't be ashamed of them. And I think that's, see, that's where God is wanting to take us. That's what he's wanting to build into our lives. I want to close by looking at Psalms 34. This is a class that I want you all to enroll in next semester. This is called the class of the Holy Spirit. Psalms 34, verses 8 through 14. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, taste and see are experiential words. God doesn't want you to know him just by theory. He wants you to know him in experience, in day-to-day -day reality. He wants you to see him working in your day-to-day -day life. And it says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. Now there's a commandment. See, we're commanded to fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. Now there's another promise. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now here's the school. The Holy Spirit says, come, my children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever loves life and desires to see many good days. See, again, that's talking about a long, fruitful, and satisfying life. Here's what you need to do. One, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. 
turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And see, Jesus invites us. He says, enter, enroll in my school and I will teach you day by day the fear of the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit teaches us as, as we listen to his voice, as we listen to him speaking to us, he will blow the whistle when we're not being holy and righteous. You know, how many of you have been convicted of sin? Yeah, all of us have. And see, that's the Holy Spirit going, hold it, tweet, wrong, don't do that. That's not, that's not my way, Dick. I don't do things that way. Oh, I see, Lord. Oh, Lord, I repent. I ask you to forgive me. Now help me to do it right, Lord. See, that's the school. The Holy Spirit who lives within us tutors us really on a daily basis. Jesus, help me to hate the things that you do and help me to love the things that you do. And that then becomes the rule for living. If I love what God loves and hate what God hates, then I'm going to be a righteous person. It's not keeping the rules. Sometimes we've heard holiness teaching and it's been, it's been boiled down to just keep the rules. And you don't see the, the rules don't work because they don't change your heart, do they? So the rules do not change the heart. And I could make a list of rules of don't do this, don't do this and do this. And you'd all walk out of here and not be holy. Even if you kept the rules, it'd be worse if you kept the rules because then you'd be self-righteous and you'd get religious on me. And that's why, see, I need a revelation like Isaiah had. I need, I need to see the way God sees it because then I'll have the motivation to turn away and say, God, I don't want to be that way. I want to be like you. Let me just give you a couple of examples here in closing. The fear of the Lord means for joy in myself, it meant forgiving the man that caused Joy's accident in 1987. There was a man driving here in town. He was driving 50 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. And uh, his his speed uh, resulted in a collision that broke Joy's neck and, and has now left her paralyzed. But the fear of the Lord demanded that we did not hold unforgiveness towards this person, but forgave him. Because to not forgive him would be not walking in the ways of God. So we, we, we learned to do that. And God gave us grace to do that. How about this? You're walking, you're walking through a store. And there, are, on, there on the shelf is a, is a pornographic magazine. Now, what do you do? You stop and you look at it? Or do you, you walk on by and say, God, I want, I want to walk in the fear of the Lord. I want to understand your perspective of sexuality. And I want to hate the things that you hate. And I want to love the things that you love. See, as I pray for revelation, for those of us who struggle with pornography, I need to have a revelation of God's holiness. So how, how does he look at what goes on in pornography? The ripoff and the, the idol worship and the disregard for the, the humanity and the beauty of the person and just looks at the body and just doesn't even care about the person inside. And see, as God begins to show us, then I can say, God, I hate that. I don't want that. I want what you have for me. And the Holy Spirit will teach you that. How many of you have been watching a TV or a TV program or a video, and something comes on, you start feeling, oh no, I shouldn't be watching this. And what do you do? Keep watching it? Or do you get up and turn it off? Or leave the room or something? See, that's Jesus wanting to teach you the fear of the Lord. And if I turn away from evil, see the Bible says turn away from evil. So if I, I start seeing things that I shouldn't see, that the Holy Spirit starts saying, Dick, don't watch this. This is poison. 
If I listen to that, I'll say, oh, Lord, I don't, I don't, I'll run away. You know, I'll run down the street. I don't want to watch this stuff. See, then I'll be learning the fear of the Lord about a chance to cheat on a test. This little deal comes along and somehow you're, you're able to cheat. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, man, I can, I can get a better grade here and nobody will ever know. But see, Jesus will know. Even if the professor doesn't find out, Jesus knows, doesn't he? And are you going to walk cleanly before him and say, no, I'm, I'm going to just do my best and take my grades. I'm not going to, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to cheat. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Maybe you're talking with a friend and someone's, the name of someone comes up that you just kind of don't like. John, okay. John X, we'll call him. And, and they start talking about John X and you kind of don't like John X. And you're just about ready to say some comments that are very critical of him. And the Holy Spirit goes, uh, 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 Dick, don't, don't say that. Don't say that. And you go, whoop, zip it up, Dick. And so you just zip it up and you don't say anything. That's learning the fear of the Lord. Or maybe you're dealing with finances at the place where you work and there's an opportunity to take $10, a $10 bill out of the till and nobody will ever know it. No one can ever trace it and catch you. What are you going to do? You realize that Jesus is watching you and that even if no earthly person ever sees it, Jesus does. And if you see if we have the fear of God, we'll say, no, Lord, I'm not going to compromise. It's not worth it for $10 and not worth it for any amount of money to compromise. And see, that's what will keep you on the straight and narrow path. Joseph, I love Joseph in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was was sent into exile by his brothers, sold as a slave when he was 17 years old, went down to Egypt. He was a good man, though, and God prospered him. And this guy named Potiphar bought him as a slave. And so he ran the guy's household and did everything. He ran the whole guy's show, except he had kind of a seductive wife. And she kept, she was after him. She kept saying, hey, Joseph, come on in here. My husband's gone for a month. Come on in here. What did Joseph do? He resisted because he had the fear of God. See, he feared, he hated what God hated. And he had the view that committing adultery would be would be a, a wicked thing in God's eyes. And it motivated him. It gave him strength to say no. And he said no to her many, many times, apparently. And then one day, no one was in the room and she grabbed his toga and ripped it off. And what did he do? He ran out of the house naked rather than transgressing the law of his God. And then she cries, rape, rape. And he gets thrown into prison for more years for doing what was right. See, the God's ways. Remember I told you God's ways are not our ways. And here, Joseph, he's back into prison now. Thanks a lot, God. Here I resist temptation like you told me to. And now I get unjustly accused of rape. And here I am back in this stinking prison. Thanks a lot, God. I think Joseph probably felt that for a while, didn't he? But see, he knew God well enough. He said, now, Lord, my, your ways are not my ways. You're going to do something here. And he was in prison for 13 years. Long time. But one day, God vindicated him. And because he interpreted the dreams of a couple other guys, he was called before the Pharaoh. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And from one day, he went from prison to prime minister and was prime minister the rest of his life. That's the ways of God. Say, That's the ways of God. And I, I have to trust him and know him. And I have to have the fear of the Lord in order to do that. Paul, I'm going to ask you to come. Paul had an experience that's part of this process of God teaching us 
what sin does to him. And this was, this was a revelation of, of, of the Lord to Paul. Uh, this goes way back to uh, the spring of 1987. I was getting ready to go on a missions trip with Todd Convlin and I watched a video s- series and a discussion was on the cost of the cross, what it cost Christ to come to earth and pay for our sins. And after I got done watching this video of this sermon, I was just really struck. And I said, God, I want to know. I want to know what it really cost you. Show me just a little bit, enough that I can handle it. I knew if he showed me too much, he'd kill me. But I, I, I literally said that. I said, God, show me what it cost you to go to the cross for me. And I began to, I just closed my eyes and I was praying and and I, I saw a picture in my my mind's eye, uh, one of the two 3D Technicolor visions I've had. This is number two, and I was I was there and I and I saw Christ and He looked up at me, and I was somehow standing over Him and He's looking up at me, and He's got the the crown of thorns around His head, a little bit of blood trickling down the side, and, and the beard and the deep eyes, uh, just very deep eyes and. And I looked into to his eyes and, and he looked up at me and he says, Paul, I love you. And I had a stone in my hand and I took this rock and I smashed it on his head. I smashed God in the head with it. I said, wham! And, and then the blood began to, to really pour down the side of his face. And he looks up at me and he says, Paul, I love you. The blood that I, I caused pouring down his face. And I took the rock one more time and I smashed him in the head. And he reaches up with his hand, wiping away the blood that is pouring into his eyes so he can see me because he couldn't see me anymore. And he reaches his hand up to me, covered in blood. And he says, Paul, I still love you. Man, I began to bawl. I was just, I was just a basket case. I was, in the, in the office, I can still see where I remember where I was. And I, I just, I fell on the floor and I began to weep before God. And I said, what in the world does that mean? What is that rock? Why did you show me this? And he said, your sin is that rock. Every time you sin, you hit me on the head one more time. He said, I still love you, but it hurts me. That has been the most motivating thing in my entire life. Never again to sin. That was a revelation that God showed me of his of what it means to fear God and hate evil. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.